I'll be too nervous to. I'll probably lost the words. another edition of the Lost Words podcast. I'm joined today uh, by former Ben Hogan Award, McCormack Medal Award winner and former world number one amateur for 46 weeks, Chris Williams. Chris, hello. Hey Tom, how are you? Yeah, I'm really well. Thank you for joining me. Um, when I introduce you as as all of those things and, and a former world number one amateur for, for the length of time that you were, how does that make you feel? Yeah, you know, it, it uh, it's a great question. And, and to be honest, it, it it feels like it was a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it's obviously it was kind of 2013. It's only eight years ago, but it, it feels like it was, you know, 50 years ago. And, and, um, but you know, I, I look back and think, man, you know, I, I, I never really looked at it at the time. And I, I just kind of, you know, kept my head down and kept working, working hard at the game, but, you know, looking back and thinking, man, these are, these are some things that, that, you know, I was, I, I accomplished just by sheer hard work. Um, you know, I wouldn't say I was any more talented than the next guy. I just worked really, really hard. Um, and so that, I think it's cool too, just that, that that's something that, you know, no one can ever take away. Um, it's something that I look back and I'm very proud of just with the, like I said, the time and the effort and the, 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 um, the blood, sweat and tears you put into it. Um, it really paid off. And, and there's a lot of guys that it doesn't, you know, a lot of guys that put in the time that, you know, maybe they don't reach that level. So I, I, I take nothing away from it. I, I'm very proud of it, um, and and it's something that I'll cherish pretty much the rest of my life. Yeah, and I love that. And the, re- the reason I kind of asked that, I heard of sort of former interview yourself, and 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 you kind of said, you know, it, it was it was in the past, and and you know, you, you're more focused on the present, and you know, it didn't quite lead on to maybe what you wanted to lead on to, and and to kind of not get caught up on it. But by the same token, like you said there, there, there are things and achievements that you can never take away. So I suppose it depends what kind of spin you want to put on it i mean at the end of the day for for a period of 46 weeks you were the best player in the world at the level that you were at and i suppose that's that's really exciting at the time and when you're in it i think you were did you probably take stock in it because i think you were so focused and so just concentrating on what you were doing that that maybe you didn't have the time to enjoy it and really relish what you're in at the time yeah it's certainly i you know and i'd say at the time i i didn't get too caught up in that stuff um you know i I didn't i didn't really look at rankings um i actually i it took me a couple days to find out (laughs) someone actually you know texted me and 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 told me um that you know i'd moved ahead of i think it was jordan at the time spieth um he was number one for for a long time and then i moved ahead of him um from a couple tournaments and 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 so no i i'd say i didn't really take much you know time to to look into that and and really relish in it um, and I felt like I, I didn't want to, cause I didn't want to get caught up in that. And that yeah. was never my personality. That was never who I was is I just, you know, I, like I said, I just kind of kept my head down and, and kept getting better and trying to get better and, and playing better golf. And so, um, you know, it was never anything that, that I took much stock in and never anything that, that I looked at and think, well, okay, you know, am I still number one this week? And now it's, you know, this is week number 12, maybe I can get another. And it just wasn't that, you know, it just wasn't me. Um, and, and, and I hope I carried myself that way. Um, I think I did. And, and um, you know, I just I just wanted to win every tournament I played in. And I figured if I if I could focus on that and keep that at the top top of my mind and the forefront, then then everything else will take care of itself. Um, and, you know, I can wait for a text from the same guy that says, hey, you're not number one anymore. And that would be the end of it. You know, and so it wasn't anything that was like 
you know, I, I, I pay too much attention to. Um, but like I said, now I look back and think, wow, that was actually, that was kind of cool. You know, it's a nice achievement to have and something to just put on the resume. Do you think as well, before we move on from this, do you think now it's harder to avoid the noise about being, you know, the number one amateur in the world? Because I think that now that there's kind of this perception that amateurs can win so much earlier and, and as soon as they get on tour, because Matthew Wolf and Colin Murakawa and the success they've had, everyone's kind of looking straight away at, at the next guy they can do it. We've had Davis Thompson this week playing really, really well. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think there's almost this kind of desire to go and find the next Jordan Sweep, the next Murakawa straight away and, and not give people a chance to grow. And maybe, you know, back when you did it in sort of 2012, 2013, there was probably not quite that amount of pressure on it. Yeah, uh, I'd say you probably hit it on the head. And I think a lot too is been done with social media right and it's just yeah. it's in your face and and you see it every day you know you see it constantly multiple times a day and, and you know you can go on instagram you go on twitter and and um you know the, the content is being pumped out consistently and so i'd say now yeah it's probably a little bit harder and and, and now that there's guys that have had you know very early success um, which wasn't necessarily the case even 10 years ago and so now it's, I, I think the expectation is there that, that you come out of college as, as one of the top, you know, collegiate and amateur players, you know, you're constantly being bombarded. You're at, you're in interviews, you're on, you know, you're on golf central, you're on golf channel. And, and, and it's like, all right, you know, what are your expectations? And uh, it's like, you know, I just graduated college, you know, give me a break. Yeah. Like I, I'm just kind of finding my way. And, um, and, you know, I see it all the time and, and, uh, especially now, like you said, with those three guys doing what they did, now that expectation, the bar is set 10 times higher than it ever was when I was coming out of college. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, too, it, it, it really shows just how deep college golf is and, and amateur golf, and then obviously how deep professional golf is, is, is you know, anyone in that tournament can win, you know, realistically. Um, and, and guys are so good coming out of college um, that they're – they're, they probably are more ready than than even when I did, you know, eight years ago. And so, I'd say that expectation is definitely higher, um, and it felt pretty high for me. And I'm sure it, it's it's doubled that or tripled that now for these guys coming out now. Yeah, and that, and that was the thing is one I think in one respect it's probably the hardest time to be a successful amateur and college player because of, of the focus and attention. But by the flip side of that, I think guys are being prepared. And the technology in terms of Trackman and, and the coaching and the standard that is that's around now, I feel, I don't even know if you've seen a, a, a massive jump in that over the last decade where, you know, not to say if you came out two years ago, would you have been better prepared to, to play well straight away? But does it seem that way? Does it seem like maybe technology and things like that have helped players prepare earlier? Um, yes and no. I think everyone's a little bit different. I, I know I was someone that, you know, we had access to Trackman and it was relatively new. Yeah. Um, you know, in 2009, 2010, not many guys used it, but I was never much of a technology guy. Um, you know, I, I, I really stayed away from that. I didn't have a swing instructor, didn't, um, didn't really look at video, didn't really look at TrackMan numbers. Um, but I'd say with all of that and, and now how people are so in, you know, infatuated by all of that, that I, I think, you know, it, it's something that it's a tool that for a lot of guys, it helps them a lot. Um, you know, a lot of guys use it consistently and use the track man and, 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 you know, look at, at data and look at their, you know, it's like, how do I increase my swing speed? How do I increase ball speed? How do I hit it further? Um, 
And so I'd say nowadays, yeah, with the technology, it, it probably does help them a little bit, you know, but it all depends on, on their personality and, and how they use it and if they do use it. Um, and I know a lot of guys that do and a lot of guys that don't. So it's just, I think it's, it, it's different for each guy. It, it's all, you know, it's all a preference. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's a nice segue into going into um, your sort of early days. At, you know, you grew up in Moscow, Idaho. Um, grew up playing golf and baseball, I think, was, was probably your kind mm-hmm. of first love from, from kind of what I've read and heard. Um, you still play with a, a ten-finger grip, if I'm correct. And yep. you kind of see it. I feel like baseball and golf seem quite synonymous as sports, whereas you do have to focus on one if you want to, you know, develop and, and grow in that sport. But they do seem to be sports you can play I guess based on the hang-eye coordination, they do help each other and feed off each other in an early age of uh, of your life. Yeah, they definitely do. Um, and and I, baseball was definitely my, my first interest. You know, golf was, was really boring to me. Um, <laughs> you know, as a kid, and I, and I I think it is for a lot of kids. Um, and I, I see a lot where parents kind of push their kids into golf, and they maybe not necessarily like it as much as as the parents had hoped. But you know, and that's a different different conversation. But I, I'd say. I, I grew to love baseball, um, you know, and and I think it was just it was a sport that I love being on a team. Um, I love that my parents just said, you know, you can kind of do whatever you want. You know, if you want to play baseball, great. If you want to play golf, you do whatever you want. And so I fell in love with baseball, um, you know, and then golf was kind of a second second nature for me. I, I, I like I said, I'd, I'd go out on the golf course with my dad and we'd take a football and throw the football around, you know, and then I hit a shot here and there and it's like, Oh, yeah, all right. you know, this is kind of fun, but this isn't something I see myself doing at a young age. Um, and, and so, yeah, when I, you know, when I play golf, I, I didn't know any better than to just hold it like a baseball bat. Hmm. And obviously it doesn't look like that. I mean, it, it you couldn't tell that it's a 10 finger grip, but I, you know, no overlap, no interlock. Um, and I, I never really, you know, as I transitioned more, as I got older, um, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe golf is kind of my avenue. Cause I felt like I could go further in golf. I felt like in baseball, you know, I wasn't the biggest kid. I wasn't the strongest, wasn't the fastest. And, and then I was, it, it's funny, even at 10 years old, I felt like there was politics in baseball. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, coach is going to play his kid. And then the coach is going to play the, you know, his favorite kid and, and the coach is going to play his buddy's kid. And, and, um, and so I thought, you know, I, and, and it was like, Hey, we got practice from, you know, three to six every day. And I thought, man, that's, that's like right after school. All I want to do is go hang out with my friends, um, or do something else. Like, I don't want to be told exactly when to you know practice, where to practice, how do we have to practice? And so that's what really drove me more into golf was, well, I can do this on my own time when I want, I don't have anyone telling me what to do and I can go further because whatever effort and work I put into it, I'm going to get out of it based on how the scores I shoot. And so at a young age, I, I saw that and I had some help from, from people around me that um, like a Kirk triplet, he kind of grew up in the same area. And, and uh, you know, he had told some people that I knew, like, you know, he played baseball growing up. He quit baseball at eighth grade and focused on golf. And, you know, he was on PJ tour at the time. So I thought, well, that's the guy I want to model my life after. And so that's kind of the route I took. And, um, you know, I, 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 I I realized that there's a lot of similarities in baseball and golf, but you know, when I transitioned from baseball to golf, I remember I'd go out and play and I, I like my, I, I could barely make contact with the golf ball just cause it was, you know, and all of a sudden now, instead of swinging at your waist, you're swinging at your ankles. 
Um, so I thought, wow, this is it's there's a lot of similarities, but there's too many differences <laughs> to where I, you know, they don't they don't mix very well. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is that you can't, I think you do have to make a decision where you, you kind of have to drop one to uh, avoid bad habits. And, and the thing I, I picked up from the, your answer there and something that I really like is that golf is an individual sport and a lot of people talk about it being a bit lonely at times and people love talking about the Ryder Cup and the Walker Cup because it's being part of a team environment something you don't get to do very often. But the best thing about it is that you get exactly what you put in and I think that a lot of, not to say you didn't have the natural talent because you obviously did and it took you very, very far, but I think a lot of your golf career was based on how very how hard you worked and how the hours that you put in. And, and that's something that not necessarily translates if you play a team sport. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I I think, you know, I, I, I never felt like I was the most talented guy. Um, and, you know, I'd play in junior tournaments and I'd see kids that looked, you know, that they looked they just looked like better golfers than I did. And I, I, I kind of saw that and I thought, you know, I, if I want to get better than these guys, I got to work twice as hard as they do. Um, and again, though, it was something that I did because I, I wanted to do and I wasn't being told to do it. You know, I didn't have a swing coach, um, more based off the fact that there really were none in, you know, the great state of Idaho that I'd even go bother seeing and I, I didn't really want it because it's like well then that person's going to now tell me how I should play this game and it's like I think I can learn this game on my own just by repetition and doing it constantly and so I, I you know I and my parents probably couldn't really to be honest couldn't afford it um, and so I thought well I'll just teach myself like how this game can't be that hard I'll teach myself and and my dad was you know he was a good player and, and my brother he played on the local university team at the University of Idaho. And so I learned a lot from both of them. And I remember all my dad said, he, he made it in baseball terms, like just feel like you're swinging to right field. It's like, just feel like everything you're doing is swinging to right field. That was the only swing and, you know, instruction I ever got. And so granted over time, I started hitting these like, kind of low hooks, but it was, it just became so consistent because that was the only swing thought I had is swing to right field. And uh, I was like, hey, you know, the ball has to start right and land right and it'll spin left every single time and it, it was I thought, wow this is really easy you know this is con it's consistent the same thing happens every time i can play for it and all of a sudden i just kind of had this i started to gain a little bit of confidence and a little bit of success and and then that just snowballed on itself and it's like all i wanted to do was practice and play and hit the same shot over and over and over and over again until like i couldn't not do it basically um and so you know when you, you talk about the you know, the, the hours I spent, it, it was, I'd be at the golf course for 10, 12 hours a day in the summertime. Cause you know, I, that's all I, I, I kind of grew to love that more so than going out with friends or, you know, doing other things. It's like, wow, this is so much fun. And I just, I fell in love with, with the aspect of how can I make this, you know, a little bit better and a little bit tighter and make this dispersion just a little bit better. And it's like, I felt like I could hit a four iron, you know, into a trash can at times. And, um, <laughs> And it was like, wow, this is really cool. And I'd go play tournaments and, and would have some success. And it just, like I said, it just over time, it snowballed into like, uh, wow, I really see a future in this. And, um, but it definitely did come with, with the lack of effort. I mean, I, 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 I did it because I wanted to, but I did it also because I felt like I had to, to get better than, than the guys I was playing against. Yeah. And it's really impressive. And you, you won an awful lot at high school and you're on the run around with 4.0 GPA. How was the college recruiting process for you? Because obviously you're now a college coach yourself at Auburn University coming up in the upcoming season. 
how did you find the recruiting process? Because obviously, you know, University of Washington isn't the closest to where, to where you grew up. And how did you end up there? Yeah, it was, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I, I played a lot of local stuff. I mostly, you know, my parents weren't, I mean, we were fine, but we, we couldn't necessarily go to the, all the AJGA events, you know, all yeah. across the country. And so I played a lot of local stuff. Um, and my big tournament every year was Junior Worlds at Torrey Pines. And so that was kind of my one national event that I'd get to play in because um, my brother lived in San Diego. So I basically he would just take care of me for the week. And so um, the recruiting process was, um, you know, it, it, it was it was for me, it was it was pretty easy because I wasn't recruited by a lot of schools. Um, you know, I never played in tournaments that would warrant you know, a, a, a recruiting letter from an Oklahoma or an, an Auburn or, a, um, you know, a, a Florida, um, just because I didn't really have exposure to those types of schools. And so um, I, I was looked at by a lot of local schools, you know, the University of Idaho and Washington State and, and Oregon and Washington and some California schools. But I also got a lot of letters that I had reached out to coaches and got letters back saying, you know, sorry, you're just not good enough for this program. Um, and I still have, I still have many of them that I've kept throughout the years from different coaches, different programs that, you know, programs that I ended up competing against in the same conference, you know, when I was in Washington and, and I still have the, it was one sentence, sorry, you're not good enough. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, okay, great. You know, that's just motivation. And, um, but you know, the, the, the schools I looked at and the schools that I was in contact with, um, you know, I, 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 uh, there were some that I really wanted to go to, some I had no interest in going to. And then, you know, the, how I ended up with Washington was, was you know, I, I spoke with Matt Thurman on the phone and I thought, wow, this guy is awesome. I mean, I fell in love with him instantly. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't really even recall what it was that he said or just how he made me feel. But but it was, you know, the conversation we had was different than every everyone, all the rest. Um, and so when I first talked to him, and really started thinking about Washington. It, it was it was a no-brainer for me. And I to that point, it's like, well, what what do I have to do to get to that school? You know, it kind of it, I almost felt like it reversed the situation, where it's like now I want to be able to come to you. Like I want to come play for you. And what do I have to do to you know to achieve that? And so um, I felt like the recruiting process for me was pretty easy, just because I didn't have a lot of you know I didn't get a lot of publicity. I didn't I wasn't highly recruited. I you know looking at rankings now as I do as a college coach, I, I wouldn't have even been, you know, in the consideration for a lot of these top programs just because I didn't play in enough national events. Yeah. Um, and so i I look at it and think, well, I was actually pretty lucky to, to have kind of, you know, been in the geographical area that I was and had the coach at Washington at the time and coach Thurman. And it just was, this, you know, it was just far enough away from home. It was about 300 miles just to feel like I was away at college, but not so far that I couldn't come home and see mom and dad when I wanted to. And so it was just the perfect storm for me. Um, and I absolutely, absolutely loved my four years at Washington. Yeah, I think you touched upon a couple of really important things there that I wanted to sort of dive in a bit further. So I, I had Peter Uline on, on the show before, who I'm sure you mm -hmm. know well. Um, yep. and, and he made an early move from sort of Massachusetts and Boston to, to Florida at an early age just to focus on golf. And I think like you spoke about there, he wanted to play in the AGGA, AJGA events and, and get that publicity and take his career further. And that's how he got recruited by Oklahoma State and he kind of put himself in the frame. So I think it's important that you mention that is that, you know, it wasn't through a lack of talent. It was probably just through a lack of opportunities. And although 
it was good motivation for you to, to pin up to say that you weren't good enough. It's probably, you can probably understand that they can't almost get around to as many people as, right. as you think they want to because, you know, the constraints on recruiting. But on that, now that you're, you, you know, you're involved in recruiting college players, do you think, you know, you, you would branch further than, than people have probably before to look for talent just based on your own experience? Uh, totally. You know, and, and we still, I mean, we still go to a lot of national events. Um, but for me, I actually, I enjoy going to the smaller events where, you know, the, the, it's, you're looking at one or two kids um, and finding, you know, that sort of that needle in a haystack a little bit. Um, you know, I was at the, the Western Junior a couple weeks ago recruiting and there's, you know, 150 coaches out there. Um, and then I go to another event and it's just me. And it's like, <laughs> I'd much rather do that, you know, the latter. Yeah. where it's just me watching and finding the kid. And, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I think like you said with my past experience, that's, that's more of kind of my comfort level is, is, um, you know, being at the smaller events, finding, finding kids that maybe aren't, you know, that, that have a lot of success, but with that comes a lot of homework and you have to do a lot of digging. You have to find those kids that aren't necessarily ranked so high but you start looking at their scores and it's like man or you know how they finish it's like this kid wins a lot he plays a lot of you know he shoots a lot of really good scores but he's playing in small tournaments and so it takes that type of homework and that type of you know of effort to, to find a kid like that um and they're everywhere you know it's amazing how many good players there are that maybe don't get the recognition and some kids that may be ranked very high and you go see him and and you think well you know no disrespect to them but they just play in a lot of ajga events so they get a lot of points and so then that boosts their rankings and yeah and um you know it's like well i'd say the kid that's ranked 40th might be better than the kid that's ranked 10th in my opinion just based off what i've seen it's just the kid that's ranked 40th can't necessarily go and have the means to play in all these tournaments you know he plays a lot of local stuff but you know the kid that's 10th is like well he can play from la to florida kind of thing and so it does take that and, and and um it does take a lot of effort to go and find those types but um those are the kind of kids that that now looking back on my history it's like those are the kids that i'm really drawn towards yeah and that's the thing is that i've spoken to a couple of guys that you know played mini tour events and come out of college at, you know sort of uh, maybe unrecognized colleges and and you, you you look at it and you think well they've they've won everything they've ever played in, um, but they're very quickly discounted because of the level that they've won at. And I think that happens mm -hmm. even at the pro level. I think you see guys and they they win on the McKenzie Tour, they win on the Latino American Tour, they win uh, a mini tour events, and people don't really pay much attention to them. And then all of a sudden they get to the PJ Tour and they go, where the hell's this kid been? And it's like, well yeah. they've been winning the whole time. It's just because it wasn't the event that you expected it to be at. Um, you know, it, it doesn't quite pan out. So I think it's going to be really important and it's going to be a, a huge asset for Auburn to have someone with your thinking. Um, not saying they didn't do it before because I don't really know, but I can imagine just having that kind of open mind and, and really looking at an eye test because there's only so much that statistics and, and numbers can tell you. You've got to go and see them and, and get a feel for, you know, their attitude and, and things like that as well. So I think that's going to be a really vital part of that process. But going into when you got to, to Washington and when you look at it, you know, you you won twice uh, in your freshman year. I think you, you, you won the Phil Mickelson Award. Uh, first person in Washington's history to do so in a pack 10. Uh, 10 rounds in the 60s. Um, 13 total under par rounds. Second in the NCAA West Regional. Ninth for the NCAA Championships. It's a really, really prestigious first year at college golf. Um, and if you look out from just from the outside, I was just going to start the conversation with, 
well, you settled in really quickly, and that was really easy for you. But when I listened back to the interview you did, that wasn't it wasn't quite as plain sailing as that. You, you did get there, and you, you come across Nick Taylor on the team at the time, and and you you really felt that you had to improve massively to even you know be a part of that team and, and really make a, an impact. Yeah, you know, and and so that was you know kind of going back to the whole recruiting process is when when I so speaking with Matt and then looking at his team, I thought, wow, wow this is a team that because they were. You know, they just come off winning pack tens. They were a really good team. They didn't lose anyone from that team the year prior. And they started the season, you know, they do the preseason rankings, like top five, I think. I don't remember the specific number, but it's like they're already going to be a really good team. And I remember when I first came onto campus, you know, coming from a small town in Idaho. Now I'm in Seattle, you know, big city, the big program. It's like I was very intimidated. Um, and I, you know, I don't shy away from that at all. So I, was, I was like, man, I. I got to get a lot better. And, and now we're, you know, instead of playing the local public course that I was at, we're playing, um, you know, these very challenging clubs that we have around Seattle and we go play in tournaments and they're set up for college golf. And I was like, boy, I, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Um, and, um, and so I, again, I kind of had that same mentality is I, I need to work really, really hard to, to just get on this team, you know, to, to play on this team. And, you know, maybe that was unwarranted and maybe I looked at it diff, you know, the wrong way, but that's how I saw it. And that's how I kind of saw myself. And so I was, you know, I, I kind of had that fear of failure. It's like, I don't want to come here and, and, you know, be the eighth guy on the team. Like I, I really need to show up and prove myself. And, uh, you know, we had some early qualifyings and, and, um, and played well and was able to make the team, but still never really felt like, you know, at any moment someone could take my spot. Um, you know, at any moment there's, there's six guys on this team that can easily beat me, um, or seven guys or eight guys. I mean, the team was so good that first year. Um, I'd say there's realistically nine guys that could have played uh, on that starting five, five, you know, five spots. And so I felt like I had to work extremely hard just to maintain that. And then if it's like, if I want to improve on this, I'd need to work even harder. And so I kind of had that same mentality and that it even, you know, it was almost, the same, the mentality I had on high school, but it was on steroids in college. Cause I felt like, okay, this is a different level. You know, it was now the best guys I'd play against in high school and junior golf. Now all these guys are on this team. And then I'm going to see, you know, the other best guys I played against in Oregon and California now on those teams. And so it's like, I, I, I really need to step up and, you know, seeing a guy and being around a guy like Nick. Um, yeah, I, I venture to say now that I've been around college golf a little bit, that there's probably never going to be a, teammate and a leader like Nick he just he was such a great guy such a great um I mean he still is you know when I was playing he's, he's a mentor to me um you know I I looked up at Nick within every aspect just the guy he was his personality um you know the, obviously the way he played the way he handled himself um and I I, I actually owe a lot to him he he uh you know it was, it was after um, it was after a qualifying in the spring. I remember I hadn't played great in the winter time. We came out of, of fall, which I didn't have a great fall. Um, had some good rounds, but never good tournaments. Um, and we had a big, big qualifying in the spring to go to the Hawaii trip. And you know, Coach Thurman had talked about this Hawaii trip as it's it is the greatest trip you'll ever go on. It's you're in Hawaii for eight days. We'll play a little bit of golf, but it's mostly we're just there to have fun. It's our first tournament of the spring. You know, no one's been playing a ton over the winter. 
And, um, and so we'll go and we'll, you know, we'll spend time on the beach. We'll go mini golfing. We'll go on hikes in Hawaii. It's like, you can't have a better trip than this. And I remember I missed out. I, I ended up finishing sixth in the qualifying and I was so down on myself. I was just, I, I felt like I was playing good golf, but I wasn't having the results that I, I felt like I should. But I thought, gosh, you know, I, I'm putting in the time, I'm putting in the work, but it's just, it's not there. And I remember sitting in my dorm room, you know, and, and the guys were in the airport ready to take a flight to Hawaii. And I was sitting in my dorm and Nick calls me and it's, you know, it's eight in the morning. And, um, I thought, oh, it's probably just a butt dial. You know, I probably I shouldn't even answer, but I thought, no, you know, uh, let's, you know, I'm, I'm curious what this could be about. And he just says, Hey, we're in the airport, but I'm thinking about you because you deserve to be on this team. You know, if we're going to go far and do a lot of things, you know, in postseason, we need you on this team. You know, you're, you're talented. You know, we all believe in you. You just didn't play great in this qualifying, but you know, you've got two weeks. We'll have another qualifying. I can promise you that. And he's like, I expect you to be in the next tournament. That's where I feel like your game is. And, and, you know, I know you're not feeling great about yourself, but just everything you could do to pump me up. And I remember getting off that call feeling like, you know, spider. I mean, I, it was the greatest call I've ever had in my life. And I'd never been, so, I'd never gone a complete 180 from where I felt to where I was like that call. And I thought, man, if someone is going to believe in me that sincerely, I need to start believing in myself. And, um, and that kind of changed the whole tide of my really of my first year and maybe even of my college career was all of a sudden I had this so much now more inner confidence than I ever thought, like, maybe I am good enough. You know, maybe I am good enough to, to compete with these guys and play with these guys. And the next tournament was the battle at the beach. And I won. I mean, it just it, like it, it, you, you can't write this in story. I mean, it was the most unbelievable experience to go from feeling where I was to two weeks later winning a college event. And, um, you know, obviously we had a qualifying and I got through the qualifying and I've been playing well. And then I, I go down to, um, Pelican Hill and, and play three great rounds and win a college tournament. And I was, it, it just, it was unbelievable. And it just, like I said, it changed the tide of my, probably of my college career. Yeah. And, and that's the thing you go from there, you win that event two starts later, you then win the ASU Thunderbird Invitational as well. And, and then you have a second before, you know, we mentioned earlier, the NCAA West Regional. And and when you look, you know, twice after that phone call, you or three times after that phone call, you're, you're the best player on the team, uh, twice second as well. Um, so it really, I guess, like you say there, just, just someone telling you that and just having that out of belief. Because I think you've always had inner belief, but then when you face someone with someone that's so good in front of you and, and, and you speak about it in the sense that you now you see it as a, as you need someone um, better than you to kind of challenge yourself. And I suppose there's probably that fine line between Nick Taylor encouraging you and pushing you on to become a better golfer and Nick Taylor being so good that you feel demoralized. I imagine there's such a such a fine line between I'm not going to ever be as good as him and I want to be as good as him and I want to exceed him and I want to go on and put the team on my shoulders when he leaves here. Yeah, definitely. And and so, you know, you, 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 you kind of fast forward a little bit to the end of that year. Um, and here's a guy that, that I, you know, I already looked up to him and now it's like, this guy is God to me. I mean, I, he was, like I said, he was the greatest teammate you could ever ask for. And then, you know, that, um, you know, I think belief in yourself by someone else is a very powerful thing. You know, him believing in me, it, it just gave me so much more confidence than I had. And so, 
you know, and then you go to the end of the year and now Nick is in, you know, Fort Worth as a finalist for the Hogan award. And then he ends up winning it. And I thought, you know what? Okay. If, if, if he can do that, which I love the guy, I can do that same thing. And so I, and I remember him saying, you know, he specifically in a private conversation, he's like, you know what, there's no reason why you can't win this in a couple of years or even next year. And granted, you know, a lot of things have to go your way, but the way I took that is you keep doing what you're doing and good things are going to happen. And so, you know, like I said, he's, he was a great teammate. He did a lot for me. Um, and being around guys like that, having, I think that's where my success really came was the people I had around me, the coaches I had, the support staff and my teammates who, you know, pushed me, like you said, you kind of have to be challenged by people around you to get better. Um, but also supported, supported me. And as I did them, and that's just the beauty of college golf. And that's where I really thrived. And, and, you know, my, my success came a lot from that, the people around me and having the work ethic that I did, you know, it was just, it was a perfect storm for me to, to be successful. Do you think that, and not in any way, uh, in a negative way, but do you think Nick obviously moving on and, and going on to his professional game frees you up to, um, to, to really take up the next level and, and be the guy on the team and get those victories. You know, you, you end your college career win, winning six times. Do you think, you know, if you'd have spent four years of your college career with Nick Taylor on your team, do you think that could have inhibited your, you know, experience? Do you think just the fact that it kind of was perfect that he was that, you know, leader there and encouraging and, and experienced and then they kind of passed the mantle to you, if you like? Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and like, like I said, I think everything just, timing is everything. Um, and, and the fact that I had one year with him when he was playing, you know, he was the number one amateur in the world, you know, he was the best, best player at his level. And so being around him, um, you know, for that one year and kind of seeing how he did things, seeing how he handled situations, um, how he practiced, how he prepared, it, it couldn't have worked out better for me. And then the fact that now he's gone, you know, we lost a lot of guys that my, after my first year, um, you know, three of the five starters that we had all graduated it's like all right well now you know there, it's time it's kind of time for the next wave of guys to step up and and be leaders and and you know take this team um you know as they did and so i i, I totally think that you know the fact that i had one year with him and then you know he was gone and i didn't have to compete against him anymore you know in all honesty it it, it worked out perfectly in, in my favor and and you know the timing couldn't have been better um and just the things i learned from him on his way out, you know, I still take to this day. Yeah, I think that's really impressive. And like we said, you won six times in total in college. Yeah, you make the 2011 Walker Cup team. We've already mentioned a couple of these names, but we'll just go through for the list of names on there. Russell Henley, Jordan Spieth, Patrick Rogers, Peter Uline, Harris English, Patrick Cantlay, yourself. And, and I've spoken to a guy on your team and a guy on the opposite team on these podcasts. And... To me, so when I spoke to Stephen Brown, who was on the, the GB&I team, and I sort of said, you know, how do you feel playing against a team stacked with that amount of top talent? Um, but you've also got the benefit of being on the home soil and, you know, in Scotland, something that the Americans are not used to. You know, what was the, what was the mood like going in as you guys and being part of such a, a strong team? And was, was there a massive expectation around you guys? Did you put a lot of expectation on yourself? Or do you completely respect the fact that you've got to go and play away and, and you can't take anything for granted? you know, I'd say pretty much all of that. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'll talk about me personally. First, I'd say, you know, because the team was so good that 
for me, I, I was overlooked by everyone, which is exactly where I wanted to be. You know, I yeah. didn't want to, you know, I would, I would, didn't have the media obligation. I didn't have to go talk to all the reporters and, you know, that was more for Pete and Pat guys that were ranked, you know, a lot higher and, and Harris English. And, um, you know, so for me, I just go play and focus on golf, which is, that's, I mean, I could live in, I could live in that world, you know, 24 seven and not have to deal with, with media and answer questions. Cause that's not my personality. And so, for me, it was great, and and I loved playing overseas. It was my first time, but I I, you know, I loved playing at Bannon Dunes, which is the closest thing we have on the West Coast to to what you see over there. I grew up playing in a lot of wind, and so I understood how to, you know, hit shots in wind and flight shots, and and I knew how to play in wind. So I was I I couldn't wait. Um, and for the team wise, you know, we of course we had huge expectations. I mean, I think. You know, if I look back on the rankings and I don't have these numbers for for sure, but I was maybe ranked 10th, you know, in the in the amateur rankings. And I was the, you know, the seventh highest ranked player on the team. I mean, you know, all the guys on the team were ranked ahead of me yeah. and I was 10th. And so it's just it was amazing how good that team was um, and how competitive we would go and have practices. And and, you know, we 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 would compete against each other and how good the golf was. And I, I think there maybe was a little bit of that, like, you know, how, how, how are these, you know, how are we going to lose? I mean, there's yeah. no chance we have to lose this event. Um, and we, you know, and maybe that happens in, in Ryder Cups. I don't know. I've never been a part of one, but you know, maybe that's the mentality that, and obviously we saw what happens in Ryder Cups. We see what happened with us. I mean, there's no reason, you know, our team on paper was far more competitive than, than the GBI team. That's just how it was. But you still have to go out and play. You still have to get the ball in the hole. And, you know, we got beat and it wasn't like we got beat by a little bit. We got beat by a lot. Um, you know, it wasn't even really close. And so I think the expectations were, were probably too high. Um, and the effort was too low, if that makes sense. I think we expected to win and just thought that we could kind of breeze through it. And we didn't, you know, and we got beat pretty handily. So, um, it was, you know, I look back and think what a great experience would have been a lot sweeter to have a, have a picture of us with the trophy but um you know i still take nothing away from it other than it was an awesome experience i you know i look back and and think those are guys that you know i became good friends with and and still speak to a lot of them today and so um it, it was awesome but like you said it, you still have to play you still have to compete and, and unfortunately we didn't yeah i mean one of the things that i quite took from it is when, when you look at the singles matches you guys did very very well i think head to head you guys obviously matched up better and you were stronger and obviously you won your singles match um, against Alan Dunbar, one up, and you won your 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 morning game with Patrick Cantley, five and three. Mm-hmm. So you are actually the only the, the only team to actually go out and win. And and I just I just wonder sometimes whether because you're you're all such great individual players, but you, you know you're all spread out across the country and don't necessarily play a lot of golf with one another. You've all got different home courses. I know Pete's United always spoke about how hard it was to play at Carson Creek, you know, hardest hardest golf course you had to play at, and he found it really hard to qualify even when he was really good. So. There's so many different things and different elements that your game needs depending on where you play across the country that maybe just when you're playing together, it's hard to set one another up, you know, when, you, when you're you're playing the same ball or when you're, you know, you know, it's just, I guess the team atmosphere and, and the team dynamic is sometimes harder to gel on, on the American side, maybe sometimes in a, in a great British and Ireland team. Yeah, certainly. And you know, I think, I think um, everyone's trying to figure that out right now because obviously you look at the history in Ryder Cups um, and, you know, I, with no disrespect, I think probably the American teams are stronger most years. Um, you know, but like I said, that team atmosphere, it's something that, that, um, 
you know, the Americans quite haven't figured out yet, um, at least in the Ryder Cup. And so it, it it's a, it, you know, if I had the perfect answer for it, then I'm sure people would be calling after me and asking me, <laughs> but I, I really don't, you know, and I don't think anyone really does. I just, you know, we just get beat and there's no rhyme or reason. And, and um, you know, the, the team atmosphere is something that maybe, you know, we're so individual here and, and we don't see each other as often as, as maybe the guys do overseas that, that we just don't have that camaraderie. We don't have that connection. And, and, you know, we play more for ourselves than maybe necessarily the country. And, and you know, that, that could be way off base. I, I don't know. I mean, but it's just, it's interesting to see every year how, or every two years, how, um, you know, it, it, you feel like, okay, this is the year that the Americans are going to do really, really well and we lose. So it's, it's a, it's a funny phenomenon. I don't understand it. I mean, I love watching the Ryder cup. I think it's, it's probably my favorite golf event to watch on TV. I just wish the Americans would do better. And I, I really have no answer as to why, why we can't seem to, to, to win more of them. Yeah, no, I completely agree with a lot of your assessment there. You just, just to take you back slightly in that year, it was the first of your two US Open appearances and you played another one before at Maroon before you turned professional. Just how was it playing in those major championships as an amateur golfer? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, I, it was so much fun. I remember the, the 2011 one, you know, I played the, uh, the Palmer Cup the week prior. Um, then we took a train down my, my, you know, my mom was there and my brother, he'd come out for the Palmer cup. And so just to, 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 you know, I remember playing a 36 hole qualifier, qualifying, flying, uh, taking a red eye to New York from <laughs> Seattle, you know, getting landing, going out and playing at the Stanwich club in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, shooting, you know, playing really, really well. And the practice round, just feeling like, oh man, this is so much fun. Like, there's not a better event than than you know a Walker Cup or a Palmer Cup, you know, where you play for your country. Um, and so that kind of led up to the U.S. Open. And so I remember taking the train down from Greenwich, you know, into D.C. at Congressional, and just every guy I'd, I'd seen on TV growing up my entire life, you know, was there playing. And I mean, my head was just on a swivel. And, uh, you know, growing up in a small town in Idaho, I never really, my wildest dreams thought I'd be, you know, playing against guys like Tiger and Phil and, and, you know, being in player dining and seeing in player locker rooms. And, you know, my locker is one below Tiger Woods's, you know, with William's last name. And so it was just, it was, a, it was an awesome experience. And, I, you know, I think back now, I mean, I was a, I was a, uh, let's see, it was 2011. I hadn't turned 20. I was a 19 year old kid um, playing in the U S open. And, um, you know, I had my whole family out there and it's like, this is unbelievable. I mean, never thought that I'd ever be in this position. And I remember people when I was 13, 14, 15 saying, you should go try and qualify for us open. I thought, ah, there's not a chance, you know, I'm not good (laughs) enough for that. Um, and you know, the, the sectional qualifying was at a course that we played a lot at university of Washington. So I was comfortable with it, um, and, and played really well, but even that's the story in itself, how I ended up qualifying. I mean, I, I, I was five shots out of qualifying with like nine holes to go and shot six or seven under on my last nine just to get into the tournament. So (laughs) it just, just to then be at the tournament and playing practice rounds with guys that, that, um, you know, guys that I, I'd grown up watching and then playing a few holes with Rory McIlroy that week. And then he goes on to win by five. It's just, it was a different game that I'd ever seen, but I wasn't at the point where I was like, well, I got to compete against these guys. I was still at the point where I was like watching golf on TV, but it's in person if that makes sense. It's yeah. like, well, you know, and, and so I, was, I just, I loved it. I soaked up every minute of it. I was at the course 
for 10 hours a day. I was like, I don't care if I'm beat tired. I'm 19. I can handle this. Like, I'm just going to take it in for, for all it's worth. Cause there's not a better event than, you know, the four majors. And I just felt lucky to, to be in one of them. Yeah. And, and that's the thing I would say is that when, when you're playing it in 2011 as, as a young player and you're still at college, I imagine there's no expectation, right? You're just really happy to be there and, and you're grateful for the opportunity and you, you know, you've earned it by playing so well in that qualifier, but you, you know, you, you, you're just really pleased to make the week and take it all in. 2013, did you start to put more pressure on yourself to play well to perhaps make the cut and play some weekend goal because you only missed by one so it wasn't a case of being miles away but because obviously you were going to turn pro i imagine you knew by that time you were going to do that because mm-hmm. it was only, you know one week previous that you know was there kind of right this is the start of my next chapter if you like totally you know i it was it was um you know i went about it completely differently than i did in 2011 um, in 2011, I felt like a kid, you know, I was still a teenager, didn't really, didn't really know what the future held. And I was like, I'm just going to take all this in. And then 2013, um, it was like, well, all right, well, this is preparation for my career. I have to be serious. I have to really, you know, work at, I, it just, it was a different vibe. And I look back and think, gosh, if I could have had that same attitude as I did as a kid, you know, in 2011, in 2013, I would have been far better off, um, and just had been happy to be there. Um, you know, and, and I still was, but it was just, it was a different, I had a different sense of where I should be and what I should be doing, um, and how I should carry myself. And, you know, it was something that my coach Thurman always told me, he's like, don't ever forget where you come from and who you are. And that was one week where I definitely forgot who I, cause I wasn't this, you know, I wasn't always a serious guy. I wasn't, I was, I like to have fun. I like to joke around. And I felt like that week I was so tense. I was so serious and it's no, you know, I remember finishing the last nine holes, like seven over and missing the cut by a single shot. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was so frustrating and I had such high expectations and, you know, had I not, there's, I, I, I would have played well. I mean, I know cause I was playing well at the time. I know there's no reason I would have not made the cut and who knows played well and maybe finished, you know, in the top, whatever. But I had such a different attitude about it, um, than I did previously. And I think it really hindered my, my, you know, my game that week. And, and, um, you know, I learned a lot from it, which I think in the long run was good, but, you know, going back and thinking, all right, what could I have done differently is I, just enjoy it, enjoy it a lot more than I did. Um, cause I felt like I needed to be serious and I needed to be a professional cause I was going to turn pro the next week. Yeah. And it's like, that's not who I was, but I felt like I needed to be someone else because now I'm going to a different stage in my life where, all right, now it's all the guys, like I said, in high school, I felt like or, you know, from going from high school to college, all the same guys that I played against in junior golf. And now it's going from college golf to professional golf. It's all the best players I played against in college. So, and guys that have already established themselves. So now I really, I got to take this a lot more seriously and I got to be, you know, a professional and do things a different way. And, and, um, you know, it's just, I I think I had a different, I had the wrong approach that week. Yeah. And as a a sort of segue into that, that I kind of want to focus on is that, you know, like you say there, you, you've touched upon it, is that you, you really were treating yourself as a, as a professional golfer at that point, and it takes away maybe a slight of enjoyment because, you, you know, you really got this weight of expectation. Was, and, you, you know, you'd previously said that you were really good at blocking out all the, the outside pressures, and the only pressure was kind of self-imposed, and you weren't sort of focused on rankings. But when you start getting to a major championship and and you're focused on as as the McCormack winner and the Ben Hogan Award winner and, and things like that, and, you, you know, the World and One Amateur 
does that start creeping and start putting pressure on yourself and because you know what's coming in the next coming weeks yeah totally um and you know it's 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 something i think in in, in college golf you just you got to focus on just playing well and that's that's really it and you, you know you don't get a lot of media attention you don't get a lot of people asking you for you know interviews and in clinics and pro-ams and all of this and it, like I said, you know, talking about the Walker Cup, that's where I love. I mean, I love to live in that area where it's like I can just kind of do my thing and and maybe escape from the media attention. And that's just I don't, blow, you know, I, I, I don't seek that out. That's just not my personality. But then as I got into the U.S. Open, you know, it's, it was, um, you know, everyone assumed, okay, he's going to turn pro next week. Who is he going to sign with? You know, it just felt like um, there's just a lot more attention put on me. And I, it, it, it's something that I, I probably still this day get a little bit uncomfortable with just being around, you know, what little media I am around now. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, as a, as a professional, you're, you're, you, you get pulled in so many different directions, you know, like I said, the interviews and the, and the, you know, people want to fly you out to do clinics and, and people want to have you for pro-ams and, you know, people, you know, people in the area, they ask you to play in these, in these like celebrity guest deals. And so it's, it, it, it became more of like, you know, instead of just playing golf, there are so many more distractions that I wasn't great at handling. Um, and then I got too caught up in all of that. Um, and, and so, you know, like, like I said, for me, I think the perfect storm was being in college, being able to play golf and, and if I played good golf, good things happen and I won some awards, but I wasn't really being torn in a lot of different directions. It's like, well, you know, here you are, you're, you won this award, you won, you know, this medal and, and that's great. It's like, awesome. Now I can go back to doing what I like to do, which is just head down, play golf. And then as I transitioned into professional golf, the, there were a lot of expectations and there was a lot of people that, you know, they'd say, well, is, does he have the game? And then some people say, well, I don't think he does, you know, he might struggle. And, and so I was very good at blocking all that out as I turned professional, I started to try and please too many people and I listened to too many people. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I had enough people telling me like, as coach would always tell me, like, just trust in who you are and don't forget who you are. And I, I, like I said, I got pulled in too many different directions. Um, and I, I, I didn't stay true to who I was, which is just a kid that loved to play golf that had a 10 finger grip from a small town in Northern Idaho. <laughs> You know, and now it's like, I want to go out to New York city. I want to go out to LA and, and, you know, be a part of all these parties and, and, you know, these functions and, and kind of get away from, it's like, now I want to relish in all the things I accomplished and now I want to take advantage of it. And that's not my personality. It still isn't. And, and so that's a big lesson I learned. Yeah. And, and the segue to this now, you mentioned who you're going to sign with and, and I'm always curious um, about this and, and we don't need to go into so much detail about finance and things like that, but signing with nike and signing with mark steinberg who's obviously agent of tiger woods at the time that in itself i imagine comes with additional pressure i don't know if it did to you but to me if you're signing with with the, with the clothing company and the manufacturer at the time who's got rory McIlroy, tiger woods and patrick Hantley and people out on their on their books and then um you know there's been kind of michael jordan and people that involved in it in, for a very long time got their own brand does that bring in itself a problem and the second part of that is did changing to Nike equipment have any effects at all? I'd say, you know, people ask me all the time, and, I, you know, I didn't look at it so much as, as added pressure signing with Mark because Mark was so great that he's like, I, all I want to do is help you succeed. You know, yeah. whatever I can do to help you get to where you want to be, you playing well helps all of us. And so 
you know, he, he looked at it and I didn't spend a lot of time with Mark. I mostly dealt with his day to day guys. Lance Young was his name and Lance was awesome. Yeah. He, he kind of totally understood like, you know, the transition is tough, whatever I can do to help it. That's what I'm here for. And so they were awesome. Um, and you know, obviously they, they helped in the transition to Nike. I mean, they did all the negotiating and they spent time in Beaverton and, and, you know, met with all of the people at Nike golf. And so that part was, that part was great. And they were great through the whole time. Um, now, you know, switching from what I'd played my entire life, which was paying switching to Nike was very challenging. Um, and you know, I was, I was never someone that liked to tinker. You know, I, I always, I'd use the same set of clubs, same set of irons for, for an entire year until I got new ones the next year, you know, and always get new clubs in September. And, and that's just the access that we had in college. And I never really asked for anything more than that. And then when I turned pro and now I've got a contract and you know, I'm flying down to the oven in Fort Worth to get fitted a couple times a year. And then if that doesn't work, then I have them send some new stuff. And it, all of a sudden, you know, I'd have five sets of irons and 10 different drivers and putters and wedges that I, again, kind of got away from where I used to be, which is I'll, I'll just make work whatever I have because I don't have access to anything other than that. Yeah. And then now with Nike, you know, I, I never felt, um, and, and at no fault of Nike's, I just never felt comfortable with the clubs that I had because I'd never used them for long enough because they would send, you know, it's like, Hey, maybe I want to try this. Maybe I want to try that. And became, you know, the, the biggest tinker of anyone I knew, huh. which again was so opposite of who I was and what I'd done in years past that got me success. And so, um, I think if I had just, you know, been forced to use this one set of clubs and, and okay, this is what you've got. This is the wedges, this is the driver. I think things may have been different, but I just, I thought, well, now I have access to this. So now I'm going to, I'm going to use it and almost abuse it and go down to the oven more times than I should and try different stuff, try new clubs, try different golf balls. Um, and so the transition to Nike was very challenging and one that I'd probably never quite felt comfortable, maybe at the very end, you know, in 20, so 2016, they started to make some really, really good clubs. Um, and I started to really like the clubs that I had and then they stopped making clubs. Yeah. Um, so that transition was difficult. Um, and you know, is it one, I, I look back and think, well, maybe I should have not changed. I, you know, at the time I was in such a different place and you know, you don't want to get into the finances, but money talks. I'll just yeah. say that. No, and, and that was, and that's the thing is I, I don't want to pry into the finances because it's, it's not my business, but it, it is obviously a factor. I mean, you've seen Rory McIlroy, the best player in the world, change to Nike equipment, and it's because he's getting paid X amount of money a year, and that's very, very mm -hmm. public. And he struggled for for a little while. We've just seen John Rahm, okay, he's just won um, a major, but he struggled with the initial switch to Callaway in, in some right. respects, not so much with, with all the clubs, but certainly with the Odyssey putter, certainly with the ball sometimes. So... And, and that's, I think that's an underrated thing that people don't see is the change of the ball can have such an impact as well. And and when you're kind of, and I, and I think what you spoke about was getting away from who you are, right? And you've always been someone that has had very simple swing thoughts. You've had you've had one swing thought and that was it. You you've had a, you've had very simple equipment. You've played the same equipment all your life. That that then when all those things change and all those kind of temptations come in, um, that that can be a problem as well. So I think that that would be one impact that I would look at. And the other thing that I always like when I speak to, to the guys that transition from college to professional, they, they always when I spoke to John Peterson, and he said that the biggest difference from playing at LSU and turning professional, regardless of the success that he had early on, 
was that you had nobody telling you day to day what to do. So you had no uh, force structure, if you like. So you can put structure <clears> yourself, but you haven't got a coach sitting there telling you that you've got to get up at 6 a.m. and you've got to go and practice or you've got to go and get a workout in. That is all on you. So if you have a day where you don't want to go and work out for three hours of the day or you don't want to go and practice that day, you don't have to. And I suppose that can have a massive impact. And I suppose also, like you say, you you were very comfortable not having a swing coach per se, but you've always had someone looking over your game. Then you've got to find someone to to trust in the professional ranks to do that when you've had someone that you've always gotten well with the college. Right. And it's, it's, I, you nailed, I mean, you hit on the head. It's, it's the structure. And like I said, I college for me was just the perfect storm of having teammates, having coaches, having support staff, but also having a structure and having a schedule every single day and knowing what the expectations are. And if you're late for a workout, you know, what the expectation is for that, and, you know, what the consequences are. And if, you know, you wake up at, 5:45, like I don't really want to go to 6 a.m. workouts. You, mm. there, it's not really a choice because then you don't, you know, you're not on the team if it happens continuously. And so, having that kind of schedule and having that set structure, it was the it was the best thing for me. And when I didn't have that, I almost felt a little bit lost. And I thought, well, now you know, now I've got 12 hours in a day. What what do I do with that time? And so, filling that time and and having know set things to do is i'm going to work out and then i'm going to practice and then i have school and then i want to be a college student now all of that's gone and now it's just why i need to work out which instead of doing that at 6 a.m hmm. um you know it can turn into 9 a.m and then it's like well you know i don't i'm not i don't have to get up at six so i don't have to go to bed at you know 10 p.m i can stay up as late as i want yeah and so not having that and not having coaches and not having and i think not having teammates you know guys that that have expectations for you and that holds you at certain standards that, you know, not having that can, can really hinder someone's, you know, abilities and, 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 you know, having not necessarily having the highest self accountability is, is also too, it's like you get holding yourself to a schedule. If you don't necessarily have someone telling you constantly to be there and do it, then it's really easy to fall in the trap of, well, I'll just do it later or I'm not going to do it at all. And so, I think that's the biggest thing. And I think you said, John nailed it on the head too. He's, it's just, you don't have that necessarily once you leave. And so now you, you have to go find it on your own. And, you know, all these people that you had that were, that were always at your access, you could, you know, text them and they, they basically come to wherever you needed them to be. Now you don't have that. So you don't have a coach, you don't have a trainer, you don't have a, a nutritionist or someone to, you know, my backstory, you can go to see the, the Cairo at, you know, in the athletic department. And now you have to find that you have to find the person that's right for you and someone that gives you the time of day and you believe is kind of furthering your career and isn't just doing it to make some money. So it was a big, big transition, big step to take. Um, and it's something that I don't think guys realize at the time how good they have it in college and how much access they have to all these people that once you leave, now you have to go out and find them on your own and you have to do the research to find these people and then on top of that, they're not cheap. I mean, they charge a lot of money because they know yeah. exactly that they can and they should. But again, it's coming out of your pocket. And so, you know, it, it, it was a big transition that I wasn't ready for. Um, and it's something that I learned quickly along the way. And, and the key word there is accountability. And that was the word that I would, would kind of use is that, you know, you, you have to be accountable for yourself. And when you're at college, you have to be accountable for your teammates. So you're, you're almost letting the side down, letting the team down if you're not doing what you're doing. Whereas if you are just letting yourself down in the professional game which i don't think you did early on i think there's there's there other factors that that came into it but i think that 
there is, like you say, I mean, you've just had, and it's not just the, the four years at college or the three years at college, it's the, it's the years at high school as well, it's the years growing up and all the hard press you've had to put in at the age of 10, 11, 12. You've done nothing but work 10-hour days by your own choice, you know, and and maybe you we spoke before you, we came on about burnout, and maybe you almost you burnt out at a young age because you done so much because you felt you could at a young age that when you got to the the professional ranks it almost felt like okay well i can sort of take it a little bit easier and have a little bit of a break because i'm my own boss and and i've got these different opportunities available to me and then you really have to very quickly flip a switch again to get back into to that kind of structure yeah absolutely and i'd say at the very start i i kind of had that mentality is um you know i i can kind of slack off a little bit yeah. you know I've, I've put in the work and now it's time to to, to relish in that yeah. and then i quickly learned that that's completely the wrong approach and so then i almost again flipped a 180 and thought well now i kind of fell into that trap i need to work so much harder than i was before and so then i'd spend you know i was never a guy that loved to spend time on the range i was never much of a range rat i'd much rather go out and play golf and be on the course and hit shots on the course and practice on the course and then I, I fell into the, well, now I need to spend time on the range. Mm-hmm. I need to hit balls constantly and I'll, I'll, you know, hit different shots and try different things and be able to work the ball a certain, you know, instead of just working it one way all the time, it's like, I need to be able to hit it a different direction. Just so when I do see a pin that's in the back, right, I can start at the center of the green and work it left to right. You know, Cause I thought, well, working it right to left was so easy. It should be so easy to do it the other way. And so I, I went down that road of, well, I need to hit it higher and straighter and further chasing that dream. So then I thought, well, with that comes more work. So then I'd spend hours and hours and hours hitting balls on a range. And then I'd get on a course and I'd almost feel lost because I'd, I'd spent so much time on a, on a driving range where, you know, each shot didn't really matter. You know, you didn't have a lot of connection to that shot. Whereas I get on a course and I thought, well, now I got to hit it at this pin. Well, what shot am I going to hit? You know, what, well, let me try this and let me try that. And, you know, golf became hard, it became a lot harder than it was as a junior. And then I thought, well, this is my career. Like, I, you know, this is how I'm going to make money and this is how I'm going to support myself. I put more pressure on myself to then play well. And then, you know, the, the tension and the doubt crept in and it, it you know, over time, it kind of snowballed into, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, it finally kind of hit the head in 2016 where it was the worst year of my career. And, you know, I was, I was every day I'd go to the range, I'm trying something different, which again, I think the theme of this whole podcast is, is be true to yourself. And I, yeah. I got away from that whole, you know, I'd never gone to the, to the range trying some, I mean, I never went to the range to begin with, but I also <laughs> never went to the course thinking, all right, what, what's going to show up today? It was just, yeah. I knew what I was doing. I was so consistent. I was so driven and, and so committed to myself and my game that I didn't care what it looked like. I was just, I knew what I was doing and I knew I was going to get in the hole and then getting away from that, you know, over the years, it really hit ahead in 2016. Um, but, you know, back to the point of, I, I, I felt like I needed to work so much harder after those first couple of months. Cause I kind of saw myself slipping that then I got so burnt out just because I felt like I needed to put so much more time into my game than I had previously. Because that's the thing. So I look, I look at it, in your first professional start on the PGA Tour, you played the Travelers Championship, you got an invite based on uh, you, you know your amateur career, and, and they do that quite often at that event. Um, 
how did you view a tied 30th finish that week? Because on the outside looking in, it's a really good performance and you should be really proud of yourself and it's it's a building block to, to future events. Did you see tied 30th as a disappointment because you're just so used to winning every week and competing every week that that you kind of force yourself to work harder because tied 30th wasn't good enough? Um, I, yes and no. I think, you know, I looked at it and thought, well, I was actually pretty pleased with it. To be clear, yeah. this is my first other than the us open is my first week using full nike clubs um and you know i I think at that point i was still fairly confident with with who i was and and what i was doing um and so i thought well you know that's a good week it it could have been better it could have been worse i mean i could have easily missed the cut i mean i only made the cut by one or two shots so um you know i looked at it and thought well uh, that was that was pretty that was pretty good and then i think one thing you know i look back on it now and I remember, I remember getting the, getting the check, and this is going to sound funny, but getting the check for, I don't know what it was, thirty-five, forty thousand dollars, and coming from a kid, you know, growing up, like that yeah. was, you know, that was almost a one-year salary for my parents. Hmm. And so I thought, wow, I can actually make a lot of money doing this. And so then that kind of the the money side, kind of, you know, what each putt was worth. And I remember I hold out on eighteen from about forty yards, for birdie. And had I made, you know, and then I started doing the math. Like, well, if I had made par, I would have made this and bogey. So I kind of got caught too much of it up, up, up in in the money and and kind of the finances of all that. And then I I thought, well, you know, if I start playing really well, I can make a lot of money. And then there's bonuses and all this. And so I looked at it as one. This was great. You know, it's a great tournament. Good finish for my first event. A lot to build on. But then I think in the back of my mind was always that, well, you know, I can make it. Uh, there's a lot of money at stake doing this, which I always knew, but then you don't realize it until you see that first check come in and you think, wow, that's pretty good. It's pretty good for one week's worth of work. Um, and so I think I got caught up too much in that. And then what's interesting is I look at a lot of the cuts I missed were always by one shot or the cuts I made were by one shot. Cause I was, yeah. I was too focused on just making the cut just to make some money as opposed to, Whereas before, it's like I just I'm here just to play good golf, and if I play good golf, then it, that's all going to take care of itself. And, um, and that was the thing is is that when I sorry to interrupt there is that, that no. every time I look at your results going back and all the research I've done that, that first year on a PGA tour across the the, the McKenzie tour, Cornfrey tour, everywhere, you were even if when you were missing the cut you were close and you were putting in low rounds and you were putting in rounds in the 60s, you you you, you talk about being lost and getting caught up in things, but you. You were never that far away, and, and it's interesting you you kind of realise that that you always kind of one or two shots out of the cut line or things like that. I think you, I think everyone realises it in the moment, but I don't think a lot of golfers are quite aware of it. You know, looking back on how close, you know, how quickly things could have been different, how your perception of how well you'd done in that first year could have changed based on one or two shots. Totally, and um, and you know, I, I kind of noticed it at the time and realised it at the time and realised that it was. You know, it was all because of the way I approached it and the way I looked at it. And, um, you know, I, I went and talked with some, some mental coaches and, um, you know, I never really fell in love with some of the stuff that they were teaching. And so I kind of reverted back to a lot of my old habits and, um, you know, I, I tried to mitigate the situation. It just never really panned out. And so I think, you know, things could have gone a lot differently that first year if I had a slightly different attitude, which again, is kind of going back to who I was, which is just. I'm here just to play golf. And it's, I remember talking with a couple guys, some of the older guys, like a Fred couples. And he said, golf, you know, you grow up loving it as a kid. You grow up loving it as a junior, as a college player. 
said, as soon as you turn pro, it becomes a job. And I said, Fred, you're crazy. Like that'll never happen because <laughs> I love this game too much. And you know, four months into it, I was like, man, this feels like a job. Uh, this is, you know, this is, uh, I, I put so much emphasis on how I did and, and how much, you know, um, how well I played and the money I was making. And as opposed to just playing golf because I love the game. And I think that's a different, that's a very difficult transition to make and a difficult line to kind of jump across is I'm going to play the game one, because I love it, but two, now I love it so much and I'm so good at it that I can actually make a living from this, but I'm not going to get so caught up in, you know, how I'm playing week to week and you know, how much money I'm making. It's, I just, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, focus on playing good golf. And it's, I struggled with that. I struggled with kind of making that different, you know, the differential. Um, and, and so it just kind of led to me not really enjoying the professional side of golf and kind of falling out of love with the game and falling out of, out of love with that type of lifestyle, you know, after the years went on. And that's kind of what happened, you know, at the end of my career as to why I got out of golf. And this is the thing. So 2014, you play uh, a pretty full schedule in Canada. Um, and, and you talk about being so aware of the, of the financial thing. And, you know, you had four top tens that year. And, and, you know, you didn't miss a cut. You played incredibly well, steady golf, a really good platform to move on in your career. You still got a, a great chance of, of making the, the next step and going back up to the PGA Tour where you, you feel like you belong. Was there a sense in that, and I don't know from your personality, I don't think there was, but was there a sense that I should be at a different level to this? So, yes, I'm playing well, um, but I'm not making enough money and I'm not playing at the level that I should be and what I expected for myself. Yeah, I'd say definitely. And, and you know, it's, it's funny, actually, I was just talking to a buddy the other day and, and a guy that came up and caddied for me a few times in Canada and he, he said, you know, there was a quote you had at, before, you, you know, it was like end of 2013. Um, I was playing a tournament and somebody asked, you know, what are you going to do once these exemptions run out? And I thought, well, I'll figure it out then. And I said, well, you know, would, would you go up and play in Canada? And I, and I guess my quote at the time, which I didn't remember, he just reminded me a couple of days. He said, It'd be a it'd be a snowball chance in hell that I'd go play up in Canada, <laughs> and that's what I said to a guy who was you know he was the media guy for the McKenzie Tour at the time. Yeah, and uh, and and then you know eight months later I'm playing up in Canada. So I think there was definitely a sense of um, you know at the time of that interview and at the time at you know when I was in 2013 coming off of a, a great year in college and a great college career, I thought you know I'm going to play on the PJ Tour forever. Um, and not really realizing that you do have to start at the bottom again, that you do, you know, in like you do in high school, like you do in college, you have to work your way up. Um, and then by the time I got to Canada, I thought, well, okay, then this is where I need to start. This is, this is a great place to start. Um, and there was a lot of good players. There's, you know, fields were good. Um, you know, it was Joel Damon's first year up in Canada. And so, you know, there's guys that are on PJ tour now that, that were playing up there. And so, um, but I definitely always had that sense of, okay, this is a one-year thing. I'll be out of here by the end of 2014, 2015. I'm on the, you know, the time, the web.com. And 2016, I'm on the PGA Tour. And so that's where I always saw myself. And then each year that would get pushed to the next year. And then that, you know, that dream of PGA Tour was still two years out because I never really advanced past the McKenzie Tour. And I'd get to Q School and I'd put so much pressure on myself because it's like this is, I got four days to play great golf. Um, and this is going to really, you know, this will advance my career. Um, and you know, I, I would, I would probably get a little tense, get a little tight 
and would always miss Q school, you know, miss second stage or third stage. And so I never really advanced past the McKenzie tour because I could never get past Q school. And I think it happens to a lot of guys. I mean, you read John Feinstein wrote a 400 page book on the tales of Q school, just because this type of stuff happens all the time. And it was something that I just couldn't quite wrap my fingers around as to why I couldn't play well in Q school. And, um, you know, as even, even my last year, I thought this, this is probably gonna be my last go. I'm just going to enjoy it and try and try and not overthink it. And again, missed it by a couple of shots. And that, that was kind of the end of it. I thought, you know what, this just, it's not in the cards for me. And as much as I wanted it to be, then, you know, I just, it's professional golf. Isn't, isn't the path that I'm going to find myself on. Yeah. And, and we obviously, we spoke before we came on about the, the, the trips to Q school and how they kind of set you back and the, how demoralizing they can be, you know, being so close. The other thing I kind of thought about was on the McKenzie tour is that there was a couple of occasions, uh, 2015 at the ATB Financial Classic, you shot 61 in the third round, um, and you, you're going into Sunday with a one-shot lead, which is a slim lead in golf, absolutely. Um, and you had a couple of other occasions where you had a chance to win, and it was in 2018 where you had um, you know, a playoff loss. Do you think that just just even if you'd got over the line in those in those events, even if they didn't necessarily secure status, which I think they might have done on, on occasion, but... If, even if they had just given you the confidence of winning, do you think that would have changed anything at all? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And it's, it, again, the same guy that reminded me of that comment, he was, like I said, he caddied for me quite a bit. And, and we talk about it all the time. It's like, you know, if, if you just, that one tournament in Calgary, you know, that 61, was, it kind of came out of nowhere. Um, yeah. And it, it's something that, you know, I, I'd always pride myself on someone who could shoot low scores which I, I've done a lot you know I've played a lot of really good rounds and shot a, a lot of really low scores um, you know a few times in the 50s which I'd still look back and think how, how the hell did I do that <laughs> um, but it 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 did and, and and you know if I'd gone out on Sunday in Calgary you know what was that five six seven years ago I don't even know now but and and won the tournament which even with the last three holes, four holes to go, if I make two birdies, I, I still probably would have won. It could have easily have changed the tide for everything. Just give you that little bit of confidence. But then, you know, on the flip side, you don't win. You end up finishing second, third, fourth, whatever it was. Now it's like, gosh, you know, what an opportunity that that gone by the wayside. And so it just it's amazing what that and same with with, um, you know, the tournament in 2018 that. I was playing some of the best golf of my life, especially as a professional. And then to, to go out and, and lose in the playoff. I mean, it was a confidence booster, but just that that sense of winning and feeling like, you know, I, I was the best player that week. Um, and just what that feels like could have definitely easily have changed the tides and probably would have gotten me in the top 10, which would have gotten me web.com status. And then, you know, now you're on the web.com and then it's, it's it's you know very similar to the McKinsey tour and you play a lot of events and and i think getting to those tours is and i think that everyone knows it is the hardest part yeah you know getting to the web.com i think once if i ever got to the web.com or the corn ferry i probably would have been just fine you know i would have stayed on that tour for it would have been the same as the McKinsey tour i probably would have been on it for quite a few years and then getting to the pga tour i think i the same thing just knowing myself and knowing my game, I, I think I would have figured out how to play on those tours, but not ever getting off the McKenzie tour. I just kind of got comfortable playing there and, uh, and never advancing. Um, and so having, having those, you know, those few opportunities and, and capitalizing on those 
is so important in the game of golf. And you see it all the time. Guys that do go on to succeed. And sometimes guys that don't, you just never really hear about them because having that sort of self-belief and having that confidence and being able to come through when it matters the most, because it's hard to win. And I've, I remember watching tournaments all the time thinking guys that win do something special on the last, definitely the last nine holes, a lot of times the last four or five holes consistently. Um, and you can think back to so many tournaments when, you know, somebody blew a lead or somebody took a lead. And it's that different type of personality that I think really makes or breaks a professional golfer. Yeah, and, and that was the thing is that I didn't want to look at the the, the tie third finish where he shot the sixty one in two thousand fifteen as like a catalyst for struggles because I think the like you said there the sixty one came out of nowhere really so obviously your game wasn't as sharp as you'd hoped it would be but it looked like you had a little period where you did struggle after that loss and then you come and get that playoff loss uh, at the Leftbridge Paradise uh, that we were just speaking about there you shot sixty one again in the second round you've always been capable even at the start of that season you, you opened up sixty five sixty seven at the Freedom and. Yeah, there's so many 65, 67, 60, you know, threes. I think you shot 63 in your freshman year of college. So you've always been a low shooter. You mentioned that I think on the other podcast, you shot a 59 without even realizing. I think you shot a 57, I think I've noticed before. So you're, you're so capable of shooting the low rounds. Is it just a case of, because because you speak there about people doing something special down the stretch on nine holes, but I also think there's, I don't think anyone's ever lucky to win, but I think there's also an element of things that got go your way, right? So I think that you look at Tony Fee now and everyone talks about having the fact that he can't win. And I think so many times he gets beat by someone because they've done mm-hmm. something, they've had the special role of the ball. And Max Homer was incredibly good at Riviera at a final stretch. And sometimes people just, just outstage you and it's just their time to do it. And I think that, I mean, certainly from my perspective, you know, you, you've walked away from the game in December 2018. There's, there's, I have no doubt in my mind that you could go 2019 and win the next year, go to web.com, win again, and, and, and stuff like that. But it's very easy for someone on the outside looking in to, to make those suggestions to you. I could sit here and go, Chris, like you're good enough to go and do it. Your friend can text you and say, look, you, it's just literally two shots away from winning again, and, you, and you're back in the place you want to be. But you have to make sure that to get to those points and get to those weeks and events that, you, that you've got to do that, that you're not putting your, your whole life of... Because it, it can become quite empty and quite quite horrible and quite upsetting if if you've got to go through all these trials and tribulations just to get there. I think some people get so caught up in golf's all I've ever known and all I ever do that they feel like they have to do it. And, and as you've shown, going to, to Market University and, and now moving on to Auburn University as an assistant coach, there's, there's more to life than playing professional golf and still being involved in the game. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, I, I, I you know, after playing for three years, I kind of started in 2016 and said, I got three years to figure this out. I always kind of looked at it as three year process was one year on, you know, developmental tour, one year on a web.com, one year on a PGA tour, corn Ferry. And so kind of at the start of 2016, I said, I got three years and I'm not going to be a guy that's, that's, you know, still now, if we'd be in 2021, still trying to make it. Um, I said, I've got this time. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to do everything I can to make it. And if I don't, then I'm not going to, you know, be, 34 35 36 still grinding on the mini tours you know it's just that's not it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me um you know the traveling was something that i never really loved you know i never loved being away from friends i never loved being away especially from family um i I loved being home and being able to go to events and and being able to to see you know nieces and nephews and once i have my own kids see them grow up and so i gave myself a timeline and it wasn't a timeline that that was, you know, it was generous, 
I mean, after playing for three years and then giving myself another three, it's like, I should be able to figure this out. <laughs> um, and, and so at the end of it, I was happy with where I was. I was very burnt out from golf and it was the best decision I've made because like you said, there's, there's so much more to golf. And I saw too many friends trying and still to this day that are, you know, four years older than me still trying to make it. And, and, uh, you know, I talked to him consistently and, and you can just kind of hear that beat down sense in their voice. And it's like, yeah, I'm still playing. I'm still crying and, you know, I'm still enjoying it. But you, you know, in the back of their mind that, that they're like, I, I don't know why I'm still doing this. You know, it, it's beating me up and it beat me up. And I mean, I'd be the first to admit it, that it, it took a toll on me that I didn't think would ever, you know, I'd never experienced from the game of golf because it's something I grew up loving so much. And so I think with all of that combined and kind of losing that sense of, of love for a game that has done so much for me, it's like, well, now when I decided to stop playing, it's like, what do I, you talk about Marquette and Auburn, it's like, what do I want to do? And, and what's, you know, what am I going to enjoy doing? And I have friends that sell insurance and make a lot of money. And, and it's like, but do I want to sit in an office and, you know, make cold calls all day? Not necessarily. It's like, I had such a great college experience that there's an opportunity to get back into college athletics. That's exactly what I want to do. And I've been lucky enough to, to be at Marquette and now at Auburn. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't look back ever and regret the decision I make to stop playing because it was the best year I had. But I also gave myself a timeline and I was going to stay true to myself. We talked about self-accountability. That was another part of it is, is if I'm going to if I'm going to set these goals for myself and then not achieve them, then I have to face the consequences of that, which is that I'm not going to play golf anymore. And that's just not the, the path for me. And that's not that's not where I find myself and that's not it's exactly what I enjoyed at the time. So it was just, it, it worked out perfect to stop playing. And, and now here I am on this new, this new journey. I think the thing is as well, is that like, that it's about being afraid of the what if, right? It's a kind of the fear of missing out is that you, you could very easily end that 2018 season go, right, well, I didn't actually make what I planned to do in, in the three years, but I was so incredibly close. I played so very well. A, a roll of a ball could have won me the event. Do you know what? I'll carry on for another year. And then you do that again, and, and, and the same things happen, and, and not necessarily because you're in bad form, but the, exactly the same thing can happen down to bat nine, and someone could just come through again. And it's how many times you're going to put yourself through that to to not get there. And I think an article I read it from yourself um, was basically saying that you know it's very easy for someone on the outside looking in to say, oh, I feel sorry for Chris Williams, it didn't work out. But by the same token, you're so at peace with the decision, and actually you can now go and... Because the worst thing you could do for, for Marquette and for Auburn now is is to kind of be half in, half out, right? Is to, to be, okay, well, actually, I really just want to go back and play the tour, but I'll help out while I can. You know, it's, mm-hmm. whereas if you're really committed to it and you throw yourself thing back in, you know, okay, if you get out there and and, and something doesn't work out in the coaching and, and you find yourself at a different end and you give it another go, that's one thing. But while you're in it, you've kind of got to give everything you can to that job and everything you can to that experience because you want to replicate what you have with Coach Thurman uh, early on in your career and, and give them the same experiences. And I think that certainly for me, from the outside looking in, I think that you can certainly bolster the, the recruitment process. I think that you can give players a chance and not necessarily would do it at Auburn University. I think that, you know, and and the thing is that people will say, you know, you can give an experience of how hard it can be to turn professional after having so much success. Well, actually, I don't think it's just that. I think you can just, you're just, you can give the realities, right? You know, do not change necessarily equipment because of financial pressures. Do not change your, um, your structure is probably the main thing mm-hmm. I would say. It's, it's kind of 
you know, if you can be the guy that's on the phone to someone, even when they turn professional, because you've been their college coach, and say, right, I can guide you through this first year at all. It's just having that guy there, a mentor, because, like you say, having a trainer, having a, a caddy, having a coach, having a whatever, a nutritionist, whatever, it, it all adds up and it stacks up, especially when you're trying to make your way for the first time. And that's why people take these these manufacturing deals and these, you know, there is there is so much. It's so easy to say, look, I'm not going to, you're here now, um, with the professionals and, and they play with a mixed bag and you see the Brooks Kepkers and you see the Kevin Nars and you, you see these guys don't play equipment deals and you're like well but they've got the opportunity to do that they've got whatever millions in the bank they don't right. need to worry about it They that's a freedom they have so it's very easy to say I'm not going to be forced into an equipment deal but if if you need it to survive those first few years of professional golf I guess that is something so you've got to weigh up the balance of of hoping someone doesn't take away what they've got going that's been so successful in college, but also taking the opportunities that present themselves that are going to aid them for those first years in professional golf. Right. And, and I think that's, that's the perspective I have. And, and I think, you know, you touched on it a bit as one, because I had such a great college experience and I had great people around me, great coaches, great teammates that, I mean, I, I want to be able to give that back to, to a kid and, and, you know, 12 kids on a team. And, you know, I do it because, Coach Thurman was so great to me. And, you know, if, if it wasn't for our relationship and our experiences, then I, I probably wouldn't have, you know, looked looked at this profession and, and, and gone down this road. Um, but then talking about, you know, a kid who who is looking to, 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 you know, whether, and I think not even with professionals, I think it's, you know, because I've been through all that. I've been, you know, I was a, a, a kid in, in, you know, a high school kid coming into college and being intimidated and moving away from home and being away from my parents. It's like, yeah, I have that perspective as well. And being, you know, on a team that's very competitive and how do I, how do I move up and what do I have to do to get better? And how do I, you know, how do I make an impression on this team? And then it's, you know, you fast forward a couple of years and now it's, all right, it's time to, to make a decision. Do I want to turn professional or do I not? And with a lot of these kids, you know, they do. I mean, that's the dream of all kids that are, 10, 12, 15, 16, 18 years old is I'm going to play on the PGA tour. And I would never shy away from telling someone to do it because it is challenging. I mean, I, I, I would have, you know, I would have turned away if anyone that said, you know, maybe give this a second look because at an eight, you know, as an 18 year old, and then now as a 22 year old coming out of college or 21, it's like, this is my life. This is my dream. I've always wanted to do this. And if I had someone say, well, you know, don't, don't do it because it's challenging or because, you know, you don't know what you get yourself into. I would have blocked that person out immediately. And I don't, I'm not going to have that same effect on a kid. You know, I, I don't want to have that conversation with a kid. It's like, if this is what you want to do, absolutely follow it because you see it all the time with guys who do figure it out early on that maybe don't come out of college with those so high expectations and they just play, play golf and, and make that transition a lot easier than I did not because I had so many high expectations just because it wasn't the person, it, it wasn't the lifestyle I wanted. Um, but for some of these guys, I mean, they absolutely love it. And, um, and it just wasn't for me, but it's something that I feel like I have a lot of experience in and you know, that transition that is, it can be very lonely. It can be very challenging. It can, like you don't have a mentor. That's where I feel like I can really help, help kids, help guys navigate and just have someone else that's on their side that has their best interest in mind, almost like a parent, you know, almost like a, a someone that's, that they've known forever. And, and, you know, have, 
be able to look at it from a different perspective than maybe they do. And sometimes, as I know I did, I got blinded by certain things that I didn't see, you know, the reality of what I was doing. And so being able to provide that perspective is something that I, I can't wait to, to be able to do more of. Um, and I think it's such a difficult transition that if, you know, any way I can help them, that's, that's where I see myself, you know, really adding a lot of benefit to, to these programs. Yeah, I, I certainly believe just, you know, everything we've gone through in this podcast so far and what we've discussed is going to be an absolute asset to that team and, and, and teams going forward as well, whether you become a you know, head coach in the future or whatever, whatever position you hold, I know that you're going to do it to your fullest ability and, and really have an impact on players. And one one last thing before I let you go, Chris, is to, I don't know if you've given it really much thought, but the PGA Tour University scheme they've got going now where there kind of is that they're trying to encourage kids to stay for the full four years to try and give them the chance to get status so they don't have to go out and find their way in a way that maybe yourself did and rely on invites and things like that what is your opinion on something like that because it, there's certainly a split opinion on, on people on tour that are already on the corn ferry that are kind of like well they're coming in getting starts in the middle of the middle of the season and there's probably a bit of disgruntledness about that so the players could face that when they're you know a bit of a cold soldier on the week so there's pros and cons i think to it and something that at least they're trying to trying to bridge the gap maybe is probably a positive yeah, I think it is. I, I mean, I, I think it, there's there's so many positives with it. Um, I think one, you know, just ma- having kids think about staying four years. Because, I mean, for me, it was never a question. It was like, I'm, I'm going to stay four years regardless. I mean, I never even considered it. But I think for a lot of kids, you know, it, and, and even kids I've seen now in recruiting, it's like, you know what, I don't even know if I want to go to college. I might just turn professional. And, you know, I think it's completely ludicrous to, to look at it that way. And you know, I can promise they're not ready at 18. I, I mean, I wasn't close to being ready at 22. Um, but I think PJ Tour U is, is it's an awesome opportunity. And it one, yeah, you have to stay four years. You have to get a degree. It keeps you in college. And, you know, it's just another, I mean, I look at it and think, why would you ever want to leave college? I mean, it's the best four yeah. years of my life. It's, you know, you don't realize how good you have it until you don't have it. It's that kind of deal. But, um, you know, you look at it, okay, now, now you've got these these five guys getting starts, or these 10 guys getting starts on the Corn Ferry Tour. It's like, well, you know, and, and some guys on the Corn Ferry Tour might not enjoy that. It's like, well, it, you know, these kids, you've had a full season, one, yeah. to, to kind of, or a half a season to kind of get ahead of them. But if they're going to beat you out, then they're going to beat you out. You know, and that's just, that's the nature of professional sports is there's always someone that's probably better than you. And if, you know, then if there's not, then, then it gets stagnant and the, and the level of play doesn't improve. And that's just the nature of one of golf. What a professional sports is that guys are going to be better every single year. Probably. I mean, that's just, there's more competition. There's, there's, you know, guys are starting younger. And so I see it as total positive for everyone. I think, you know, it pushes guys on the corn Ferry tour to, to continue to um, get better. And, and, you know, I mean, the ultimate goal is to get to the PGA tour. So this is still just kind of a stepping stone. Yeah. Um, but for, for the kids, you know, it's, it rewards them for the four years of golf that they've played. And so I think it's a huge positive one for academics, you know, to stay in college and get your degree. Cause at the end of the day, I mean, like I said, I, in 2019, I hardly played at all. It's cause I had to go back to school and finish my degree. You know, I spent seven months, eight months going to, to spring quarter and summer school just to finish a, a college, a college diploma. And so to have that incentive built in already, it's like, well, I can play four years and I already have a place to play as soon as I'm out of school. 
it's a huge positive. It's a huge bonus. I wish I would have had that opportunity when I was coming out, but I think it's just, it's a great thing for the game. It's a great thing for college. And if the guys on the corn ferry complain about it, it's like, just play better. I mean, that, that usually solves every problem. Just play a little bit better and you'll be just fine. Yeah, and, and, and I, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I had an interaction with a, with a more seasoned professional, should we say, on, on the Corn Ferry who kind of sort of, he was he was first alternate a couple of weeks ago. And and he was like, oh, well, you know, there's two guys from the PGA Tour University that are in and, and that means I'm not in. And I was like, well, but you were, you were 30th alternate four days ago. It's only because people are pulled out and can't get to Maine that you're even there. So, of course, it feels worse. And like mm-hmm. you say, they've had six months to play for it. So really on the flip side which i've never thought about is it should actually push them to do better like oh god you know because you can bet your bottom dollar the people on the pj tour at the moment are worried about when colin maricara and matthew Wilson and that come on tour and, and have success straight away that bucks their ideas up and i think that right. that makes 40 year olds and 45 year olds play better it keeps them young so i certainly think it definitely is a positive all the way around and and like you say you had a, a wonderful college experience and if you can pass it on to, to guys in the future then and certainly the, that's the best way to go. So, Chris, I want to thank you very much for your time. I know it's been early this morning. You, you agreed to come on early for me. So thank you very much for doing so. And uh, I wish you all the very best in the forthcoming season of Auburn. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I know we chatted for a long time. We covered a lot. But uh, it's always nice to, to get out and share the story. And, um, yeah, I just really appreciate you having me on. Yeah, no, thank you very much, Chris, for giving you all of those. And, and I hope we uh, really live some good memories and uh and uh, and made you feel better about yourself this morning. Yeah, absolutely. You certainly did, Tom.